Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the, the Headlines. Headlines. Coming to you from the American Society of International Law. This is Cal Raustiala. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines from the American Society of International Law. Today, we have as our special guest, Adel Huck, a professor at Rutgers, who uh, will be speaking to us about the recent incident involving India and Pakistan in which uh, planes and, uh, and people cross borders. Uh, there were many lives lost, and uh, the incident raises a bunch of, I think, very interesting questions about the use of force in the 21st century and how we should think about the framework. So I really appreciate uh, you coming on the podcast, Adel, and uh, maybe we could just begin uh, by recounting what occurred in, in, uh, in, in the border region between India and Pakistan, uh, and then we can move into some of the issues around the use of force that are raised by it. Uh, but can you just tell us a little bit about what actually happened? Sure. Uh, so on February 14th, a uh, suicide uh, attack was conducted in Indian-controlled Kashmir, um, killing uh, 39 or 40 uh, Indian soldiers. Uh, a group called Jaisha Muhammad uh, quickly claimed responsibility for the attack. Uh, within a few days, uh, India took um, measures against uh, operatives of that group in Kashmir, uh, killing several and then there was a uh, lull, at least in terms of lethal action, until the 26th of uh, February, at which point India uh, conducted an airstrike. Um, the details of that airstrike remain uh, a bit unclear. Uh, India initially claimed that um, the strike was targeted at a training facility of this group and that many members of the group were killed in the process. Uh, Pakistan denies this. They, they say that uh, really nothing of um, uh, much, no structure was hit. Uh, journalists have tried to sort out what exactly happened. They tend to confirm that whatever the initial target may have been, um, it was not actually struck. And there's not a lot of evidence that in fact this was a training facility and certainly locals uh, say that this was an abandoned school. Uh, the following day, uh, Pakistan um, responded uh, with an airstrike of its own, uh, once again, uh, and this time explicitly not uh, targeting any particular military or civilian building or, or object. Um, during these aerial skirmishes, um, Indian planes were shot down uh, and one Indian pilot was captured, uh, held for a, a brief period and later released after being um, photographed, uh, raising some uh, questions as well. Meanwhile, there was uh, shelling, artillery fire across the line of control uh, that killed at least six civilians, including three children, uh, at least some of them in their homes, uh, as well as uh, at least two Indian soldiers. After the Indian pilot was returned, um, military action between the two sides uh, subsided um, and at this point um, seems to have returned to the um, status before the, uh, these uh, strikes occurred. Great, thank you. And, and just to underscore, the status before the strikes occurred wasn't all that calm. And you know, there is a history obviously here going way back of of uh, some degree of, of, of skirmish and menace on either side. And these are obviously two 
uh, two states uh, who both possess nuclear weapons, and so the potential for uh, for this to escalate is is quite worrisome. So, um, so I just I don't know if you agree with that, but I just wanted to underscore that even the status quo ante isn't isn't so uh, terrific. No, in fact, I would add uh, to what you just said and say that the status quo ante was uh, quite terrible. Uh, that these uh, cross border artillery fire uh, was if not routine, uh, not, not uncommon. And every year, a certain number of people would be killed uh, during these uh, exchanges of fire. Um, and as you say, uh, the prospect for a nuclear co- confrontation is always there. And the, to me, the, the reason the airstrikes were particularly alarming is that um, because of the threat of deeper incursions either into Pakistan or into India, one could see how that could escalate more quickly. Um, but as you say, uh, the, the um, situation that we had uh, before was quite uh, lethal as well. So that was really an excellent summary. It raises a lot of issues. So, but let me just start with the fact that there have been skirmishes in the past. So this is an area where um, this is almost a commonplace this particular level is unusual. The, the exact, uh, I guess, mode of conflict in this incident is, is distinctive. But the fact of conflict at a kind of low level isn't. Does that change anything about how we might analyze the significance of this use of force and whether it crosses any uh, legally significant thresholds? So in my view, it does not. Um, and that is because first, even if there is, as a matter of law, an international armed conflict between India and Pakistan in virtue of these, um, again, fairly regular military strikes between the two, that would not affect the question of whether either one is acting lawfully under the UN Charter um, or acting in self-defense under the UN Charter. Those would be separate questions. And my own view is that Broadly speaking, both sides are violating uh, the UN Charter, and so we simply have a case of um, an international armed conflict uh, in which both sides should not be using force against each other at all. Um, and, and so from that perspective, I, I don't think the background violence uh, necessarily changes the legal questions that we'll be, we'll be talking about today. So when we think about thresholds, they're not cumulative. Uh, they're, uh, each incident, in, in essence, is taken on its own and, and, and examined, analyzed on its own. There can be circumstances under which um, discrete acts of violence um, would not in and of themselves trigger a right of self-defense, but taken together might that is possible i don't think that's what's going on in uh, in this in this case though i see i see okay terrific so let's talk about sort of the big picture here first uh, so what you what is the significance of let's say india's action in particular we'll start with that uh, for for either the un charter prohibition on the use or threat of uh, force um, or any other uh, aspect customary law or others we might want to point to and i'll just note that India, in, in explaining its actions, uh, the foreign secretary issued a statement where they described their action as a non-military preemptive action uh, that was, quote, specifically targeted at the JEM camp. Um, but the non-military preemptive action language struck me as quite interesting. So, 
so I guess what I'd like to ask first is, how do you view this incident in light of uh, the charter and perhaps other sources of law? And then secondarily, does this formulation by India, characterizing this as non-military preemptive action, um, does that carry much weight? Is that a reasonable locution? Is that novel? Uh, you know, just sort of what are your thoughts on that as well? So it's certainly an unusual formulation. Uh, most people who have discussed this think that the term non-military was just meant to emphasize that the strike was not targeting the Pakistani military. Um, and the rationale would be that this would contribute in some way to the legal justification of the strike. But how exactly it would do so is not clear. And as you say, the statement is, uh, is a bit hard to parse. And it's worth noting, and others have, have noted this, that the statement does not use the terms self-defense or armed attack. And India has not reported its use of force to the UN Security Council, as it would be obliged to do if this was, in fact, an exercise of self-defense. So all of this makes India's legal rationale quite murky. They could be suggesting that because they were not targeting Pakistani government or military facilities, therefore this was not even a use of force against Pakistan. So the prohibition on the use of force under the UN Charter would not even be implicated, and so there would be nothing to justify under the rubric of self-defense. They could be saying that. Um, or they could simply be trying to emphasize that there is no reason for Pakistan to retaliate because none of its soldiers or, or military facilities were targeted. So they could be trying to emphasize uh, that idea. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that's really interesting. And I think it's it certainly seems like both sides have tried to, both through their subsequent actions and through the, the particular language they've used, try to uh, minimize the likelihood that this is going to escalate or could be seen as, um, as a prelude to, you know, to future action. But on this issue of, of trying to, to cabin the action, let's just stick with India's statement for a second, to try to cabin it by calling it non-military, the sentence that precedes it, uh, they say, the government of India is firmly and resolutely committed to taking all necessary measures to fight the menace of terrorism. So they certainly uh, characterize this as a non-state actor uh, attack. They don't seem to directly impute it to Pakistan and its government, though obviously in other parts of their statement and in other language, I think they've, they've made their, their view clear that they think there is some connection. Um, so is that defensible? So I, you know, I understand you said it could be this or it could be that. Is it, de is it defensible for India to say, look, this is just uh, a non-state actor group that killed 40 people. Mm -hmm. We're going after them. And uh, in fact, we don't need to report this to the Security Council because this is not a use of force. Do you find that uh, a defensible statement? Or position? I, I do not. Um, views like this have been proposed in the past. Uh, so it's not completely out of bounds. Um, so some people look at the language of the of Article Two, Paragraph Four, um, which talks about a use or threat of force against the territorial integrity or political independence, or uh, contrary to any of the other purposes of the United Nations Charter, and have tried to argue that 
well, in principle, a use of force might not fall under any of these three categories, and therefore it would not breach this provision, and therefore you would not need to justify it as self-defense. But my own view is that this argument is not successful, and that if you look at both the text and the context and the preparatory work behind the UN Charter, it's fairly clear to me that Article 2, Paragraph 4 is meant to be a comprehensive prohibition of the use of force, and that these three categories are illustrative, they're not exhaustive. Uh, So it's a blanket ban, and self-defense is the only um, unilateral justification allowable under the Charter. So that approach, I I don't think, would be uh, legally correct. Do you think, in light of that, that if India was instead to argue, we are acting in self-defense, we were attacked by a, a non-state actor operating in the territory of Pakistan, we're going to attack that non-state actor, perhaps using an unable or unwilling standard, and we could talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Would that make it more defensible, in your view? That would at least bring uh, India's rationale within um, a bit closer to a, a mainstream position, since, of course, uh, the United States and a number of its allies have taken a similar position with respect to uh, their use of military force in Syria. Um, so in, in, in that respect, it might move India uh, closer to where at least some other states are. Um, I do think that that uh, legal basis still raises a lot of questions that need to be answered before we could decide whether it's actually uh, valid under international law but at least it would be um, within the mainstream, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's I think that's reasonable. So just to clarify, so it is, uh, I guess, the position of the United States government and maybe some other governments, though that's less clear to me, uh, that if, if a state actor uh, is unable or unwilling to contain a threat emanating from its territory, that that would give rise to, uh, to, to a kind of uh, ability to intervene as we've uh, as we've seen India do against that actor. And that, as you pointed to, is something the U.S. has has used in other places. Do you find that entire line of argument unpersuasive or troublesome generally, uh, or is it more as applied in this particular case? So my own view is that Article 51 of the UN Charter is concerned with self-defense against an unlawful armed attack by another state. Uh, It is really a subset of aggression. Um, That is what triggers the right of self-defense under Article 51, as it was understood at the time. Now, there are certainly ways in which uh, a treaty's legal effect can deviate from what was originally intended or understood. and so it is, it is possible that self-defense under the Charter could uh, take on uh, the meaning of uh, including self-defense against uh, actions by a non-state actor. But none of the arguments that have been proposed in the literature, and, and this debate has been going on for over 15 years now in a concentrated way, None of those arguments have struck me as particularly persuasive. And even if this view was adopted, it would give rise to a number of very serious questions, both of 
principle and of practice, which I haven't really seen anyone explore and answer in a, in a satisfying way. It is, it is definitely true that the issue of how to deal with non-state actors who, uh, who commit violence that's above some minor threshold, uh, or even not, uh, who just commit violence in the territory of another state, has continued to kind of bedevil international lawyers. So part of what makes this particular incident between India and Pakistan interesting to me is that it once again raises this question of how do, how can states uh, react when this sort of uh, attack occurs? And so I guess I would ask you, what if you were advising the Indian government in light of an attack that kills 40, 39 uh, individuals that's emanating from the territory of a neighboring state, what they could do what, or what they should do, um, what would you counsel them in terms of their, their, their options and, and what is in fact the best option? So their most obvious lawful options are first to engage in bilateral negotiations with Pakistan and through a peaceful settlement resolve this dispute between the two states about what India perceives as Pakistan's uh, unwillingness or inability to suppress armed groups operating from its territory. And of course, if that fails or in parallel to that, uh, seek the uh, resolution of this, this dispute through the United Nations Security Council, which after all is charged with maintaining international peace and security and dealing with long-term threats. Um, and although India said, uh, the foreign secretary said, that they have credible evidence of an imminent danger, the rest of their statement makes that um, uh, hard to, to, to take at face value. It seems like what they were really trying to do was identify uh, training facilities um, that this group uses and select one to strike, maybe to damage the group, maybe to send a message to Pakistan, maybe some combination of the two, but not really to preempt an imminent attack on India. This is more of a long-term threat uh, or long-term security problem that needs to be dealt with um, and can't be resolved simply through the unilateral use of force. So you think either legally or politically, there's not great significance to the fact that India repeatedly used the word preemptive, characterized the strike as preemptive action, preemptive strike. Does that, does that carry any, any legal or political weight in your view? It, it does not, uh, because looking at the foreign secretary's statement as a whole, um, he also says that... Um, there are a number of these facilities where members of this group are being trained uh, and that they selected this target in particular. Interestingly, they said uh, to avoid civilian casualties, which suggests that there was, again, a, a choice of targets. It's not that an imminent attack was going to arise from any one of these targets or in any particular combination thereof. Um, again, that they, 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 chose a target um, partly to degrade the group, partly to uh, send a message to Pakistan, but not really to prevent a particular uh, strike emanating from this particular target. And again, all of this is against the background of this controversy about whether this even was a training facility and whether India really intended to, uh, to destroy it. 
Um, and without that factual predicate in place, it's actually quite hard to know what to make of the Foreign Secretary's statement to the extent that it e even is trying to offer a legal rationale for India's action. Agreed. So, so let's just to, to wrap up the discussion, I, I in part wanted to talk to you about this because I had read some of your previous work discussing Syria, and you mentioned Syria in passing uh, a few moments ago. So I would just be curious to hear, you know, when you look at this incident, as well as uh, issues around the use of force in Syria, uh, do you draw out any sense of evolution in the law governing the use of force? Do you see these as accumulating in any way towards shaping state practice, perhaps even the customary law of the use of force? Uh, or are these just kind of scattered instant instances that don't really accumulate uh, to anything meaningful for us? So I would distinguish between the two uh, because the Indian strike that we just witnessed First, there is this preliminary question about whether it was truly defensive, whether this really was a training facility of some kind and India was trying to destroy it in order to prevent some future attack. There's a factual question about if this is state practice, what is it practice of? And then, of course, there's the question of what exactly is the rule or principle that India accepts as law? Um, and because India has not put forward a easily understandable legal rationale, we don't really know what its legal what, what the legal basis of this is supposed to be. And without that, again, this incident can't really contribute to the formulation or modification of customary international law. And so, whereas in Syria, you would you you see more that. Um builds up or somehow shapes state practice in a way that's meaningful? You, I, I you do. draw a distinction, but I'm not quite, I, I just say, I just want to press you on exactly what, what's different about Syria. Of course. So I think that in Syria, um, several of the intervening states, um, and I'm particularly thinking about um, the United States and some of its Western allies, have been quite explicit about what they take to be the legal basis of their uh, actions in Syria. Um, and this at least allows us to look at what they are doing, their practice, under a legal heading. And we can at least say these states have taken a particular view of international law, and we need to look and see whether custom is being changed or being reflected in their actions. Um, and that is different so far than what has happened with India, where it's really not clear what their legal rationale is and what legal um, uh, principle is supposed to be uh, at play in this, in this act. Are there interesting issues or important issues raised by this incident with regard to the law of armed conflict, as well as we've been mostly talking about the use of force dimensions, but what about uh, use in Bella? I think there are a few. Uh, one, to return to the artillery fire across the line of control. Uh, this, of course, raises the question of whether some of this fire was indiscriminate, that is, uh, not specifically directed at a particular military target. And the fact that some of these civilians were killed in their homes certainly makes that something uh, that we would want more information about, um, because it certainly raises that 
possibility. Uh, another issue, which is a little bit technical, but, but perhaps worth pausing on, um, is to ask whether India is in a non-international armed conflict with Jaish Muhammad. Um, this particular attack obviously killed uh, 39 or 40 Indian soldiers. And so it's a, it's a very, very substantial attack. Nevertheless, there is a view according to which um, a non-international armed conflict only begins when there is intense violence between a non-state group uh, and state armed forces. And this raises the question about whether that threshold of intensity has been met in this case. And the practical consequence of that, uh, in case uh, some, some listeners uh, are, not, um, are not immediately seeing it, is that if there is no non-international conflict between India and Jaish Muhammad, uh, then both the members of that group and their facilities would actually be civilian uh, under the law of armed conflict, and so targeting them would be unlawful on that basis. A another issue that I, I think is easy to gloss over, but um, perhaps should be uh, noted. So Pakistan's um, responsive strike. Um, although Pakistan did uh, speak of an Indian act of aggression, and did briefly talk about demonstrating its right of self-defense. Pakistan's other statements make it fairly clear that this was a kind of retaliatory strike, uh, simply aimed at right. showing India that Pakistan was uh, prepared to respond militarily. And because of that, Pakistan uh, says that it chose to target uh, essentially an, an empty area, no military targets, no civilians. Um, and one can certainly understand that from the perspective of minimizing the risk of escalation. However, it remains the case that anything that is not a military target is a civilian object or part of the natural environment, which makes it look like this was an unlawful attack under the law of armed conflict, because again, it was not directed at a military objective. So those are some of the issues arising under the law of armed conflict that are worth bearing in mind. Well, Adil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate having your, your insight and expertise on this, and I hope we can have you back sometime in the future. That would be great. Thanks for having me.